Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Lin Yap, author of The Altruistic Capitalist. In this episode, you'll hear how Lynn didn't start off as a writer, and in fact, she shares how, as a younger girl growing up in Malaysia, she didn't use her voice at all, literally. And there's one story she shares where a car door slams on her hand and she doesn't say anything, which is crazy. And throughout the episode, we discuss the journey of finding that voice, and not only finding it, but developing it and cultivating this voice and impact. Her professional journey started in law, where she is a qualified attorney in multiple jurisdictions. And then she went to business school and moved over to investment banking, where she helped take Facebook public, to moving on and working in consumer companies like Estee Lauder and Adidas on their innovation strategies. And all the while, she also started an organization that helped the underprivileged and underrepresented to discover their talents. I highly, highly recommend her book, The Altruistic Capitalist. And I won't spoil anything for you in summarizing that there's three important themes that really resonated with me, and not only in business, but overall in life. And those three things are collaboration, mindfulness, and curiosity. I absolutely love Lynn's mission to share this knowledge and encourage others to be more conscious of their purpose and follow their curiosity. Please enjoy this interview with the delightful Lynn Yap. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Yin. Thank you for joining me. And a big thank you to Tram for the introduction. I remember we were talking about the show, and she immediately said, you need to interview Lynn Yap. I said, okay, I will do it, (laughs) because I highly respect and admire her. And so big, big thank you to her for the introduction. Now, I want to get started talking about your book, The Amazing, The Altruistic Capitalist. You wrote it during the pandemic, which I want to ask you about and see how that was catalyzed. But first, I like to start the show rewinding everyone's highlight reel, starting with when they were little. So if you don't mind sharing where you grew up. Of course. So I grew up in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur, and I was a very, very quiet child. Teachers would tell my parents, you need to get Lynn to speak up more. She doesn't speak up in class, doesn't talk to many people. She's just on her own all the time. And one story is that I was so quiet one day when I was probably around eight years old, there was a van that came to pick me up from school to and from school. And on one of these trips, the lady who opened and closed the door of the van when they picked us up, she accidentally slammed the door on my fingers. And I was so timid and so shy. <laughs> I didn't say a word. I was just, she slammed it and I was just like, oh. <laughs> went into the van and kind of pouting and, <laughs> and all, by, all by myself like oh poor me but I didn't say a word I didn't even tell my parents I was just my fingers were all black and blue at the end of it but I was so afraid of my own voice as a child and 
I don't know, here I am today. <laughs> that was who I was as a little girl. Well, I'd love to see when you found that voice, because I would have been screaming literally being <laughs> the moment that contact happened. But so then where did you go to college? What did you study? I studied law. So when I was 19 years old, my parents, and I'm very grateful for them for doing this, they sent me about 6,500 miles from Kuala Lumpur to the UK to study law. It was the first time I lived away from home, away from my parents, and away from my family. Didn't know anything. I didn't know how to do my own laundry, didn't know how to cook my own meals. And it was the best thing they probably did for me. It was when I learned to be independent, learn more about myself, who I wanted to be, how to manage my own time, how to manage my own expenses and budget, and just understanding who I would become as a person. So that was my college experience. I'm always so fascinated by every guest on the show where they're incredibly successful. I mean, your background went from law to banking to education to author now. And the guests are so inspiring. The feedback I get from the listeners is, gosh, they didn't know what they wanted to do in college. Me too. Or we have kids then that also have no maybe North Star just yet. And so it sounds like the same for you where you didn't know necessarily what you wanted to do. How did you choose what would be the starting path to your professional career? How did you choose law? <laughs> I'm not sure if I consciously said, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. So my mom has nine sisters. She comes from a big family and they all have different professions. So when I was thinking about what to do with college, I had a chat with each one of them. I had a chat with the doctor, the dentist, the pharmacist. I had a chat with the lawyer as well. And then ultimately my mom said, look, why don't you study law? You know, this is something that makes sense. You can always leverage it to go into whatever profession that you want later on. I mean, I was 18 at the time. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And you know, at 18, you think, oh my gosh, this is for the rest of my life. You're so afraid of making a mistake. But what she said made sense. She said, do law. This is going to be useful no matter what you do in the future. So why don't you take this as the first stepping stone? And so that's how I ended up doing law in the UK for college. And then once I was there, I thought, well, all right, you might as well finish that path and become and qualify and become a lawyer. So I did and I practiced and then what happened was when I was a corporate lawyer, I also worked with investment bankers and I saw these guys do something quite interesting. They structure the transactions that I'm working on and they know uh, they do these things called the financial model and they value companies and they come up with these different ideas. So that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to go into investment banking. This looks like something quite interesting and is completely different from what I did for college, what I did for undergraduate. And I was very good at math in school, in high school. So I thought, all right, I'm, I'm just going to try this too. And so I jumped. I had no idea, not really, what I was getting into. I didn't, I mean, people say, oh, you're going to work a lot of hours. You're going to work 80 to 100 hours. But you don't really know what that means physically <laughs> in your 20s until you actually have to do it. I was working those hours and I was teaching myself corporate finance and accounting because I had a look at a balance sheet. I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. I didn't know what my debits for my credits. And so I had to do all that, learn how to build financial models, Excel, PowerPoint, and do those hours that banking analysts and associates do. That was a fun adventure, a little bit of a struggle the first 12 months, I have to say. On top of the 100 plus hours, you're also adding a lot more hours in terms of educating yourself. How did you like it? Did you miss law? Were you surprised at how much you liked banking? What was your experience? 
I have to say that's not a day when I miss law. <laughs> Banking was very hard. I won't lie. It was really very hard. The hours, there's nothing to joke about. It's really quite long. It, it does take its toll on you. But I'm very grateful for the foundation and business that I got, understanding strategy, understanding finance, and learning how it is that makes companies successful. I'm quite grateful for that journey, for the opportunity, for the first person that said, yes, we will take a chance on you and see what you can come up with in banking. And so how long were you on the banking side before you decided to switch industries again to a, a bit more of the educational side? In total, I've done it for about four or five years. Because what happened was I did banking after law. And then before business school, I switched into consulting for a little bit. Because I thought, okay, to make myself stand out a little bit from the rest of the business school applicants, I'm going to have some operational experience as well. So I went into turnaround consulting, really getting into nuts and bolts of how to manage a business. And then I went to Wharton, did my MBA, and then came out and then went back into banking. So all in all, I had like four or five years experience in banking in total. After business school, Banking was more in the tech space. I was working on IPOs for companies like Facebook and Nielsen. So that's what I did in banking. I'd love to hear your experience about what it was like to do the IPO for Facebook and how that gave you an aha moment. <laughs> Indeed, that was a big pivot point in my life. This was May of 2012. We had been courting Facebook for a long time. Everybody wanted to be on the cover of the S1 for Facebook. It was the biggest tech IPO of that time. But at that same time, my grandmother in Malaysia fell ill. And the doctor said that she wouldn't make it. And so I went to the manager at the time and said, look, this is what's going on. And I would like to go back to Malaysia to say goodbye to her, to support my family in this difficult time. Answer that came back was, no, there wasn't really much thought. And it's like, oh, well, no, you know, Facebook is going to go public and we need you here. And of course, at that point, this was post-2008 recession. The team was very slim. It was very much just me and the other person. And so I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I understand, kind of. And I was really torn between the duty to my family and the duty to my work. And ultimately, I decided, okay, I should stay and make sure that the deal goes well. And so Facebook went public. It went on the road. My grandmother passed away and that was it. I didn't get a chance to go back for the funeral or, or any time after that. And nobody asked me as well at the office, what happened and how are you doing? It was just moving on. It left a bad taste in my mouth. I felt guilty, most of all, about the decision that I made. And I couldn't really talk about it to anyone because I felt really guilty. And it's like, how could I have made such a decision? But with that moment, with that happening, I started to question more about what is important to me to understand my values, my own values, and what is it that I would put up with and what is it that I want to do. And that's when I decided to leave investment banking. As grateful as I am for the experience and the knowledge that I gained from the work, and the work is exciting, but it was not worth it in the end for some of the sacrifices that I had to make. It's fine to miss birthdays and to miss dinners and weekends. And I think there's a certain point when for me it was, well, this is not cool anymore. This is where I need to draw the line. And it's up to me really to say, this is my boundaries. And I don't want to cross that. I love that. It's finding your own voice and 
serving the duty you have for yourself. So what did you end up doing? You left banking and what did you think was the next step for you? So because for most of my life, I've gone down the path where, well, you should do this and you should do this and you will find happiness and you will have lots of money and you'll be fantastic and happy and you'll be successful and everybody will respect you. So jumping off that train, jumping off that ladder, jumping off that path, I guess I wasn't so ready to jump off completely just quite yet. So I moved and I worked at Estee Lauder. That was my first role outside of investment banking. And because I had been doing tech, I went into the innovation side of the business. I worked with the e-commerce team, understanding what are the different innovations that can really move the needle in terms of growing the business. Because at that point in time, the business was the e-commerce business had had reached a certain stage where opening new doors online didn't move the needle as much anymore. So it was about how can we leverage innovation and technology in order to grow the bottom line. That was where I went to and how I moved into innovation within the consumer space. So did you stay within that segment for several years or what was that path like for you? I did. My next role was within Adidas, where I worked on innovation as well. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, in the meantime, what had happened was I left banking where I was working like 100 hours a week or something like that to considerably fewer hours. And I'm just someone who's very active and quite curious. So I spent my time then also looking, talking to startups. I started volunteering as well to understand what is it that I want to contribute and spend my time with. So on the side, when I was at Estee Lauder, I started investing more time with mentoring startups, mentoring students as well, younger women who are interested to advance their careers. So I started investing time exploring how else I could give back my time and how this then translated into future or current experiences that with a startup experience, for instance, at Adidas, what was done was I was involved with the collaborations between Adidas and startups. How is it that the two organizations can play together, can collaborate and complement skill sets in order to come up with more innovative products for the consumer? So that's where the startup experience played into my role at Adidas. In terms of the volunteering experience, I started volunteering with schools, with high school students. Along the same lines with a startup, I noticed that there are not many women who start their own companies, who work in the tech roles, who work in digital roles. And my idea was that maybe it's a funnel problem. We don't have many women at the bottom of the funnel working in these roles or being entrepreneurs, starting their own companies. Maybe because we don't have enough of them in college studying the right subjects. Or maybe it's a little bit further up the funnel, maybe at a young age already as teenagers or even younger than that. There are subtle subconscious messages that we transmit to the girls in our lives. Oh, you know, you should do this or you shouldn't do this and you should be this and you shouldn't be that. You should wear pink. (laughs) You know, just these little things that we subtly say and uh, we subconsciously say, but over time it affects what a girl thinks she can and cannot do. So I'd say that the first time I organized a mentoring program for students was with a group of girls who were 10 years old. And that was actually a little bit too young, (laughs) a little bit too young. And then after that, I got started working with girls who were a little bit older at 13, between 13 and 14. And then they start to understand and they like, oh yeah, okay, I know 
math is not just for boys then. I can do it too. And you get them to work on certain problems or work on certain topics that involve technology and they find it fun in a way that makes things interesting to them. For instance, at a recent cohort, we have, of course, a number of girls who are interested in art. Think about Pixar. Look about how we can do all these special effects with technology. And then it's like, oh, this is cool. It's like, this is how I can marry my interest in art with technology, with the digital world. And then they become more interested in computer science as well. And I think that's a big win, really, for us as a community. Because when we have diversity, diverse voices at the table, we can have a much richer conversation with each other. I love that. So it sounds like during the time that you had switched over to more of the innovation unit, whether it's Estee Lauder or Adidas, you started volunteering. When did it fully switch for you where you said, okay, this is going to be my full mission? And how did that work? After a few years at Adidas, when I decided I've invested a lot of time and understanding what's important for for these girls, also from the mentor perspective, like what they liked about their experience and designing programs that made that experience a little bit richer. And so at one point, I just kind of jumped. It's a little bit like my jump from law to investment banking. I didn't know what was going on. And so I just pulled the plug and said, okay, I'm doing this now. <laughs> let's, let's just see. I've been told that, uh, yeah, Lynn, you never know. You don't even know what you're going to land on. <laughs> I don't know where this comes from, but I guess maybe I'm optimistic. I think I will land somewhere. <laughs> I feel like I'm like a cat. I know I will land on my feet at some point. It's just a matter of how it happens. So many people, including myself, I'm afraid and I don't know what I'm afraid of, but I'm afraid of trying things, doing things. And the genesis of this show is the idea of don't be so afraid of failure because inevitably so much learnings and growth comes from that. So I'm inspired by how much you went out there without any idea of what to do. And the chances are it wouldn't be successful the first go around or the first draft isn't so great, but it's doing. And actually, I really do admire people who just do and create and are not afraid of the first draft of whatever they try to do. Mm -hmm. And so jumping in again to a new field, how did you attack it this time? You left law, you left banking, the innovative consulting decide. What did you do in terms of, OK, let's see what I want to do next? In terms of starting the organization for the women, well, I had done it for a few years as a volunteer and I thought, all right, let's try and make this into a business. Got a partnership with Pearson. We did a pilot program. They were very happy with it. And we were talking about how can we make this into a multi-year partnership? And then COVID happened and schools closed. Everything was in real life, <laughs> in person, in real life. And then COVID happened because we work with underprivileged students and some of them don't even have the right equipment at home. Let's say internet, laptops, headsets, things we take so for granted so easily. They didn't even have access to that. But once they got back into school, then it was possible to have everything then turn everything into 100% virtual program. And so then started again talking about how we can make this a more engaging experience. So just taking things one step at a time and being patient, knowing that as long as things move in a positive way or there are lessons that I can take from it, that's enough for me. And it's the same with the program. If I can only help one person at a time from each cohort, from each program, that's enough. Think about how much you're changing a person's life from just showing a younger person what they could be, unblocking that limitations that we sometimes put on ourselves. That's quite powerful. And if only one person is affected, 
by that each time. And I think that's good enough. Oh, more than good enough. I know we spoke about this before, but there's a woman I interviewed. She's a three-time cancer survivor. Her name is Amanda Rice. And she created this amazing nonprofit that helps women with cancer dealing with fertility issues. And she said one quote that I thought was so powerful. And she said, I'm not going to change the world, but I can change a world. And so that's what I keep trying to do. And to your point, if you could just help one person change their world, that compounds and it has ripple effects of who they could influence in their ecosystem and so on and so forth. And so it's quite masterful, the network and compounding effect. Can you share more about Activate Network? So Activate Network started when I left Adidas, when I decided, okay, let's try and make this into a business, a business as a force for good. I'm passionate about it. I believe in the idea. So let's try and start something. So my first collaboration was with Pearson because there's an impact on the business. There's real business value for them. They get access to their target market. It's an education company. We're working with students. This helps their talent pipeline. It also helps them understand how their target market thinks, gives them that perspective. So that's clearly business value. And then from their employee perspective, their women employees are involved as mentors in the program. They feel more engaged with the brand, with Pearson as a brand, with as a company, and they're able to meet other women within the organization. They might not meet necessarily in their day-to-day business, in their day-to-day work. And of course, there's that additional impact of social impact. They are helping the local community. So it's like a triple benefit, if you like, for the business, for the employees, and then for the local community. That's why I started Activate Network. In terms of the scale, when it became 100% virtual, then it became a global program. Because then with Pearson, I was able to work with their employees, not just in the US, but also in Europe. And so that was quite cool for them because usually teams are in silos when you're divided into different countries. And this was an opportunity for them to also bring different women together. So at the last program, I typically work with groups of 20. That's a manageable size because once it gets too big, it's not as effective anymore. There was one girl who was very extroverted. She was always the loudest in the events. And there's one who was very quiet. She was We have two presentations. She didn't speak for the first one. She always had her mask on because she was just very self-conscious about herself. And what happened was in the the run-up to the second presentation, their coach, they happened to share the same woman coach, she swapped their roles. She said, why don't you try something different? Put yourself outside of your comfort zone. And so the introvert, she was very good with art and designing. She was designing all the surveys that was the database for all the research that they were doing for the problems that they were going to solve. And then the extrovert had to do that for a change, had to do all the structure and all the detail planning, the surveys, and the introvert had to speak during the second presentation. And of course, they did both their roles well, not their usual comfort space. But what was powerful for me, because they also shared then at the end of the second presentation what they got. And on their own, they both said, the experts said, I learned so much from observing and helping the introvert to speak, to find her own voice. And I learned to appreciate her for who she is and what she brought to the team. And then the introvert said, well, I've, you know, she only spoke for five minutes, but it was a lot for her. She was very articulate, but she said like, I have done this now for the first time. It wasn't so bad. And she has to thank the extrovert in the team for giving her the support, holding her hand and saying like, you can do this. And so I thought that was really beautiful how two people who were so different from each other grew to appreciate 
something that they didn't have in themselves to see the benefit of another person, the beauty in working with people who are very different from you, from seeing their perspective, from seeing their world. Oh, I love that. That's incredible. There's one book I really enjoyed by Ben Horowitz. It was called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. But he talked about how there was an issue at a prior company he had worked at where the head of sales and the head of engineering, there was tension and friction within the firm. And he was randomly inspired by watching the movie Freaky Friday, where the roles were reversed and the mother and the daughter switched bodies. And it inspired him to take those two roles and switch them, kind of similar to your profile. And so the Uh head of sales was now head of engineering and vice versa. And when they came back after several months of that swapped role is so much more empathy for Mm -hmm. that group. And so the tension really dissipated and really they worked a lot more collaboratively together because, to your point, perspectives had changed and the perspective had widened to understand where they were coming from. So I love that exercise. Very, very cool. I was so touched, you know, this is a 100% online program now. And the women were tearing up and getting emotional. I was like, I'm not doing such a bad job. Because introverts, to a certain extent, think, oh, they're they're too loud, they're too loud. But she was so grateful for support that the other person had given her for the encouragement and for the guidance, and just for them to show appreciation for each other. I thought that was really quite cool. Oh, very, very cool. And one interview I listened to that you did before, in your program, you match profiles of people that one generally wouldn't match, whether it's introverts or extroverts, whether it's quiet people or vocal people. But why do you do that? Each woman mentor in the program has two mentees, two students to coach throughout the three months. And one typically is an introvert and one is an extrovert. And the woman herself may be an introvert or extrovert, but she will be more comfortable speaking to one than the other. The idea of that is the same as diversity. We have to work with people who are different from us, whether it's from a personality perspective, background perspective. We will work with people who are different from us. And how is it that we can flex our communication muscles, our listening muscles, our empathy? How comfortable are we to open our minds to someone who is different from us and to want to see their perspective? And so that was the idea between that, because I think that's very important for leaders to have that open mindset. To think it's it's okay for people to be like this or like this. It doesn't always have to be white and male if you if you like, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be the loudest voice in the room because sometimes the quiet voices have something to say too. And so the pandemic is on month, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 plus at this point. And I remember last year certainly highlighted the divide, the inequality. And I also recognize what it did with me in terms of the impact. I was not inspired to write a book. I was just dealing with a lot of things. So I'd love to hear how you came out with the concept of the book. And if we could share the guts of it and really start talking about the book. It's a wonderful, I'd say very different type of book in that I've read a lot of books with this type of theme. But this one was very different in that it really combined this idea that it's not mutually exclusive, that you can create impact and that you can do good by also being a capitalist, but just reshaping what people think of capitalism. So I'd love to hear the background during COVID of how you said, yes, this is the time for me right now to write this book. (laughs) Thank you for that feedback on the book as well. So with everything shutting down on May 13th or whatever it was, 2020, and I live alone, I thought, well, 
better time than ever to write a book because I don't really have an excuse right now. The schools were shut. I couldn't run any of the programs that I was doing. And there were little breadcrumbs in the past few years about writing a book. And most recent one being in February, the month before from a friend who said, hey, Lynn, you know, you should talk to this publisher. They're quite good. And I think maybe if you talk to them, you will like them and you could write a book. In February, though, I had just started thinking about launching more programs and I'm a book mm, too much time and it's just it's not going to be worth it but as things would have it March came there was this big lockdown couldn't do the programs like okay so I guess I have to write this book I have to say I was experimenting a lot in lockdown I tried to be vegetarian I was doing yoga every day I was doing lots of different experiments the biggest experiment was learning to be a writer. Of course, like a lot of the other experiments in my life, I didn't really think through what it meant to be a writer. (laughs) I didn't understand the marketing, the whole publication industry. I have to say it's been a fulfilling experience. I enjoy so much, and maybe this resonates with you as well, talking to people about this subject. And it's a a subject that I, I really passionate about how businesses can be used as a force for good how and I think it's important I mean I have a very traditional business background business can and should be used in order to create a positive impact on the environment and on communities there is nothing wrong with capitalism the majority 50 60 in some countries even 70 percent of the community of the population have a big distrust of corporations big tech people don't trust anymore. But it's not a problem of capitalism. Capitalism is just a tool. It's how we use it. And I think it's taken a little bit too extreme. Maybe it started as well in 1970 with Milton Friedman's article about the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. But I think we've really taken that to extreme. We've maybe to a certain extent, Business leaders have also used it to their own advantage, which is a little bit selfish. But capitalism in itself is not bad. It's like technology. There's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing bad about technology is how it's used. I want to emphasize this. This is very important to have money, to make money, because if we don't have the resources, we cannot solve some of the problems that we have. And so changing that mindset of a dog-eat-dog world, using up resources to steal market share, to take more market share from your competitors, I think is, is to a certain extent wasteful. How is it that we can work together, complement each other, and solve the problems that will actually help both of us that we want as well? As as competitors, we want to solve these problems. There are a few stories now. The most recent one is the one with Albers and Adidas. I, I only know the whole Adidas thing because I used to work there and I know the mindset. And the whole mindset is dependent on being open and not wanting to hog the limelight for having created something. And so Alberts and Adidas created this shoe that has the lowest carbon emissions at 2.94 kilograms. And the average is about 14 kilograms of carbon dioxide. In the past, you wouldn't have expected this of two companies that target the same niche market, make similar products, working with each other, sharing their secret sauce to a certain extent. And they have, while they make similar products, they have different skill sets. Adidas and Albers have different skill sets, different areas in which they're good at. And they work together in order to launch this product, which I thought was really cool. And similarly, I have another example, which is Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy. A number of years ago, Best Buy was bleeding a lot of money. 
analysts were going to write it off saying Amazon is knocking on their doors. Nobody's going to walk into a Best Buy store and buy electronics with Best Buy. And what he did was he basically turned it on his head. You would really turn it on his head and said, but why do I have to fight with Amazon? Why not just work with Amazon? Amazon's online. I've got this store. I'm just going to invite Amazon and sell it on <laughs> in my store. And so they they started selling Alexa products, Amazon products at the store. I mean, there were lots of other things that he did. A lot of it was started with purpose. What is the purpose of Best Buy in the community? And from there, the strategy built to include as well collaboration with Amazon, which I think is really cool. And I think that's really the way forward to work with each other to solve these very complex problems, whether it's related to education, poverty, homelessness, or even the environment. We need to work together to understand how the different root causes are interconnected so that's government organizations, nonprofit organizations, other for-profit companies. How is it that we can work together to solve the problems? Because we all have a different skill set and we can attack the root cause in our own way, depending on what we're good at. So that is the mindset behind the altruistic capitalist to think about win-win, how to be more conscious about your purpose as well, and to be okay with asking questions. And so those are the three things, collaboration, mindfulness, and curiosity, to not be afraid to ask questions and test the assumptions that you have. Well, there's so many questions I have and paths we can take from this. So it borders a lot on what I spend a lot of time with my work is ESG, environmental, mm -hmm. social, and governance. And what's interesting is it covers everything. You had mentioned a few of those topics, the environment, climate, but then also human capital, social capital, diversity, inclusion, and not to mention governance and boardroom and so all of that. Where do you start? So if you're a listener now saying, okay, I'm going to pick up the book, how does one digest all of those things? Because to your point, each one is so complicated and so complex. And so how did you think about it in terms of shaping this narrative within your book of where to start when you rethink all the things in the boardroom or in the offices or schools, but how did you think what to focus on within the book and also just within applications of this? You're absolutely right. I could have gone anywhere with talking about this topic. And I did what I usually do. I go out and talk to a lot of people. So I interview maybe 50 plus leaders, whether it's in social entrepreneurs or people working in large corporates, but people who are very passionate about doing good for the community and for profit. And then from there, I look for common patterns. And really the common patterns were related to being more present, being more mindful, being curious about learning, collaboration and partnership. Those were the three consistent themes that came up. And in terms of the question I wanted to answer, I had over the years since leaving banking as well as like, yeah, you know, I want to volunteer, I want to give back, I want to do this, but there is this or that, the money or doing good. and. What I wanted to share was inspirational stories about how there are people, there are companies who have grown brand equity, they've grown their reputation, they've helped community, they have also grown from a profit and created new markets. There are ways in which you can do all of that. You can have your cake and eat it too, essentially. You can impact your employees, you make them so much happier, so much more fulfilled at work. You can help the communities that you're involved in, and you can also support the environment. So I wanted to share those stories that it is possible, it's not just a pipe dream. So that was the whole 
pieces of it to inspire others. I thought from a book, I, uh, that's, that's my contribution to this topic. That's wonderful. And so it was released about four or five months ago. So congrats. It's a relatively short time to put all of that into writing. Once you finished it, how did you feel? What was that like? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing about writing a book is it's not done just like that. You finish the draft, then it goes into edits, and then you look at it again. And then when it's finally published, you think like, oh, now I'm done. But it's not. You have then all the conversations that happens after that, the marketing, recording podcasts, um, talking to others. I also didn't want to just leave it there because I learned so much from my conversations with others. So I continue to publish articles on a weekly basis. And I continue to learn and I continue to share what I learned. Because the thing about writing a book and releasing and publishing regularly is I'm learning. I'm still learning about the subject. I do my research, I synthesize it in my own head, and then I put it out to the world, like what my perspective and what I think and what I've learned. And that's, I think, a very powerful way to understand a topic. It is different from going to school and taking your master's or just doing it that way. Writing and sharing, teaching others about what you've learned is a powerful way to get deep into a topic. It's so interesting that we started the story with your childhood of not having any voice where literally you're not even (laughs) screaming with you're in physical pain to writing a book and sharing this message with the world. So that is such a wonderful evolution and and transition. And I highly recommend the book to everyone listening. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd love to shift gears a little bit and ask you the questions I ask a lot of my guests, starting with what or who inspires you? I have to say my father inspires me a lot. I will share the story of what he did when he retired. He's someone who is always curious and who's always learning. He likes staying active mentally. And so when he retired, he taught himself how to paint watercolors. He didn't get a chance to when he was younger because he was so focused on putting food on the table for his family. He got a job and he worked, but he never invested any time in the creative side of him, the artistic side of him. And so when he retired, he's like, okay, I'm going to teach myself watercolor right now. This was him in his late 60s, and I taught him YouTube, and later I taught him how to use Pinterest because he looks at images for inspiration, and then he starts that. And in his late 60s, he's been painting watercolors. Relatives have really liked his artwork, and some of them want it for their homes and stuff. But imagine someone in their 60s. I mean, he's probably one of Pinterest's oldest users. I am so, so blessed to have someone like that in my life. To this day, he's still curious and he still wants to learn. I mean, he's even told me, hey, you know, I've been trying to teach Siri how to speak Malay, <laughs> which I think is, quite, which I think is quite, quite funny. You know, he's very curious about technology where most people might shy away from it at that age. But he's someone who's super curious and he's not afraid to learn. I love that. Well, this is a somewhat related question, but did you have a mentor or role model in any part? And you'd mentioned your mom has a big family, so it could have been the aunties too, but did you have a role model that helped shape how you think? And I like your three pillars of collaboration and mindset and also curiosity. Other than your dad, was there some role or a person that really helped you in shaping your thoughts? I think it may have been different people throughout my career that have inspired me or who have nudged me a little bit. 
to try out different things. I was given opportunities throughout my career to step outside of my comfort zone. For instance, when I was a lawyer, I was given drafting work to draft contracts fairly early on in my career. It was hard. <laughs> it was really hard because that's not done very often, but I was grateful in the end. And similarly, in banking, I didn't know my debits from my credits, but the person who gave me my first banking job was like, all right, well, you sound like you are ready to do this, so I'm going to give you that chance. So I, I want to say it's more the different people who believed in me throughout my career who said, yeah, I'll take a chance on you. And that maybe has given me the confidence to experiment and to be outside of my comfort zone. Over the years, I've been uncomfortable when I'm too comfortable in a place, if you like. If I understand it too well, I'm like, okay, what is it that I'm missing? What else do I need to learn? Because this is, if I'm stuck in the, doing the same thing all the time, then I, I'm not learning and I'm not growing anymore. I'm not helping anyone. I'm not giving value to anyone else. So I need to be doing something else. There's a concept that Dr. Aoife Brennan, she's the CEO of Synlogic, this synthetic biology company. Her whole career is based on remaining sustainably uncomfortable. <laughs> and I just love that concept. And it sounds very similar where I love that you always are curious and acting on that curiosity. Love that. And so, I mean, looking back at your career, it's certainly not even fully formed, like it's still evolving and transitioning and growing. What are you most proud of so far? You've helped a lot of people in terms of education and consulting and banking. You've helped take Facebook IPO. What are you most proud of? Probably helping the girls achieve their dreams or believe that they can achieve their dreams. The magic happens. I mean, you can see it in their eyes when they suddenly realize like, oh, I matter. I am seen. Somebody else sees me and recognizes me for who I am. And that belief changes how they stand, um, changes how they talk to others. They really believe that they can do anything. And so for me, like I said, if it's just one person every year, even <laughs> if it's just one person that would have been worth it, they will carry that throughout their lives and think like, I'm worth it and I can go after my dreams as well. Something I thought was super fun and that a guest has suggested, and so I started incorporating it. But what is your superpower? I'm curious if you could think of what you are exceptional at specifically just to you. I think I take my experiments, my curiosity, like a game. I, I don't think about, oh, what if I look stupid? I'm going to give an example related to, let's say, moving to a different country. Because I was based in Germany for Adidas, for instance. Didn't speak a word of German. I just take it as a game, right? I'm going to show up. I'm going to take some German lessons. And I'm going to start speaking German. And I make up my own words when I learn a foreign language. I will think, all right, this is probably how they say it. And use whatever German words I know to make up a sentence. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they like, look at me a bit funny or they laugh at me and like, yeah, that's okay. It's just a game. I'm making things up as it goes along to see if they understand me. <laughs> if, it, if they don't understand me, that's okay. And I guess what I'm trying to say is to have fun, to have fun in the process. What's the worst that can happen at the end of it? That segues into my next question, which a lot of people hold back or don't do because the worst that can happen in their minds is failing. And so people shy away from it of the attempt and they don't do it. And I I've learned to really embrace failure, not that I want to fail. And so I'd love to hear some of your biggest growth moments, which I'm sure has come from some type of setback or even failure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of my biggest pivot points was when I left banking. 
And maybe that was not so much a failure, but I felt like it was a mistake, the decision that I made. It could also be about my organization at the moment, Activate Network, while I feel like, oh, I've not scaled it fast enough. There was COVID that happened, schools closed, and I couldn't scale it. But at the end of it, what am I gaining? What lessons have I learned? But for COVID and schools shutting down, I wouldn't have written this book and learned how to how to write and found my voice or, or overcome my fear of being exposed to a certain extent. Because every time you publish something, when you publish a book, you expose yourself to judgment and it's very confronting. Even when I publish every week now, my newsletter is like, oh, what if somebody tells me it's what the horrible writing you have and that's completely wrong? Overcoming that fear of being exposed, of being naked. That's kind of how I see failure. There's always, what if I didn't do it? And what else could I have learned from it? So that's how I see it. I don't really see it as failure as such. It's just what could I have gained from doing this? Absolutely love that. What's next for Lin Yap? Hard for me to say what's going to happen in 10 years. What would be cool, though, if people took the idea for Activate Network, and I'm happy to work with others, and they put it in their own communities. I do not need this to be mine. For me, it is more important if the impact is scaled. If there are more girls who get involved in technology, who think they can start their own companies, when we have more women, more women's voices at the table, that's what I like. I'm not married. I'm not precious about this idea. What I want is more women having a seat at the table and heard at the table. So that's what I would like to get to have this idea spread and that I can share it and people will implement it on their own. And then as a writer, well, let's see. Maybe there'll be book number two. <laughs> well, let's let's see how it goes. I'm still at the start of my journey as a as an author. It's enjoyable so far. I'm learning my voice, learning to discover my own voice, learning to shape that voice. So that's it, really. Well, Lynn, I had a blast in this discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people learn more about you and whether it's the Activate Network, the book, but where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? So the best place at the moment is altruisticcapitalist.com. You can also email me directly at lynn, L-Y-N-N, at altruisticcapitalist.com or subscribe to my newsletter on Medium. I'm L-Y-N-N-L-Y-A-P. Awesome. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 